Open your Bibles with me, please, to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. You just heard moments ago by the young man that was presenting Psalm 18 to us. It doesn't matter if your father was wicked or righteous, because you can stand before God on your own merits. And that is true in a practical sense, as true as it can be. I want to remind you uh, about Abraham before we get started. And I hope that uh, this may pop up again while we're studying Abraham. It may take us more than a week to study Abraham. It probably will. Abraham and his family were idolaters. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And here we are today. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. The flood here is not Noah's flood. The flood here is the river Euphrates. And you will find it mentioned as the flood in other places as well, but it's mentioned a couple times in this chapter alone as that because the river Euphrates was huge and it was like a flood. And to be able to get you and your belongings across it without the modern bridge system, drones, helicopters, airplanes, uh, it was called the flood. Because Terah did not live on the other side of Noah's flood, nor did Nacor live on the other side of Noah's flood. You should be able to know from just rudimentary knowledge of Bible chronology, this cannot be Noah's flood. It is the river Euphrates, because they did cross the river Euphrates to come into the land of Canaan from Babel, Babylon, or Ur of the Chaldeans, because the Euphrates was the big river in that area. Enough on that. Let's not be distracted by answering questions that should be obvious. As soon as I say the word Terah, you know that it is not Noah's flood. There's two, there's two rules of Bible study. We immediately rule out what a verse cannot mean. And so we rule out immediately that it cannot mean Noah's flood, and it means the river Euphrates because that is what Abraham had to cross. So let's get started with that. Abraham did not have the best of beginnings. And so many like to blame their origins, their parents, poor training by their parents, and other excuses like that for not amounting, amounting to all that they could as Christians or as men. And that is not true, that's not wise, that's not fair, that's not right. That is just a lazy cop-out of a lying fraud about their own life. Because you can be whatever you choose to be based on God's blessings, based on God's offerings, based on God's means, based on God's enablement, based on God's spirit, based on God's word. What more could he have done for his vineyard? What more could he have done for us than that he has done? It's our fault if we don't measure up to all that we should be. And we should always recognize that and we should repent for it. So when we think about Abraham, and he was a great man, and one of the greatest men in the history of the world, and one of the greatest men in the Bible, you could, with not very much effort, reduce him to the top three men in the Bible. And it's a great exercise to go through as to where Abraham stands. 
And you know where I, you know I love David. But for right now, who's David? Because I'm preaching about Abraham. And Abraham was great. And we are now coming upon a mother load of covenant promises. Noah didn't give us anything. Let's be real. Okay, the earth isn't going to drown with a flood again. It's going to be burned up. There's not a whole lot of hope in that. I get burned instead of drowned. Abraham is full of hope. Abraham lived a life of hope. Abraham was the most spiritually, one of the most spiritually minded men of the Old Testament. Abraham, the Bible says that they were not mindful of the country which they had come out of, or they might have had opportunity to have returned to it. They were not belly worshippers that minded earthly things. Abraham had changed his whole, his whole perspective on life, and all he could think about was heaven. He did not care that he did not have enough ground to put the sole of his foot on. That is how plain Acts chapter 7 is, and Stephen, about the fact that Abraham did not inherit a single inch of the land of Canaan, though it had been promised to him for an inheritance. He didn't have an in, a single inch of it because he thought of heaven. There's so many things about this man that we want to learn. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12, which is the first chapter that is dedicated in the Bible to Abraham, though called Abram here. And chapter 11 is the first introduction to him. I hope that the charts that I have sent out have provided a little bit of help by giving a visual perspective of the 20 patriarchs that started the history of this world and covered the first one-third of it. And then... The, uh, the diagram that I sent you yesterday, I know it's ugly, and I know it's poor and pitiful, but it, it, I just threw it together for you in hopes that it might show you how the covenants are laid out and where the Old Testament and New Testament are and, and these great patriarchs and the promises that we get through them. I, I hope that it might have been a little bit of, of help to you to have a visual picture of it. We, have, we are looking at the divine covenants. And I have narrowed them down to seven for you because of the seven main ones. There are lots of smaller ones. And whether we deal with them or not, we'll see. Like the covenant with Phinehas. You know, in Numbers chapter 25, it's a covenant. And it's called a covenant. And, and God was excited to make a covenant with Phinehas because of what he did that day with a javelin in a tent rather than going to a prayer meeting. Sometimes it's right to pray and sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's things you can do that are better than prayer. And I want to say this right now about the politics in our nation. Praying is not the most important thing you can do. When you hear me talk about praying for our government, I tell you it's a very powerful thing that you can do, but there's one other thing in front of it, and that's to live a righteous life. And that's from Psalm 18. Then the earth will shake. But God doesn't want prayers of less than perfect men. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Then why aren't you? Asa was perfect, and Zechariah was blameless. It's a righteous life. Abraham did not barter with the Lord and negotiate with the Lord for God to save Sodom and Gomorrah for ten praying souls. He knew they didn't pray. He negotiated with the Lord for ten righteous souls. And a righteous life is what you... Praying doesn't even matter. It's the effectual, fervent prayer of a, of a righteous man that avails much. So if you're not living righteously, don't even pray. Because it's not going to do any good. 
Get, repent. That's where you ought to start. Repent and live righteously. Then the Lord will and, and can bless. We are studying the divine covenants. A covenant is a contract or a compact between parties in which con- conditions or promises or unconditional promises and benefits are settled upon and stipulations are made and it goes into force and even a man's covenant is not disannulled and you don't alter it by adding terms to it later. Once it's established, that's what it is. And God has these with men. And God has these with himself. And the everlasting covenant, the overarching covenant that covers all these covenants of time is in the Godhead himself with God himself and his eternal counsel. There were no angels present. There were no men present. Jesus was in in existence. It was God himself committing to save rebel people that he would create later with an everlasting salvation through the intermediate work of his son. And it's all spelled out in eternity. Heaven was started in eternity. It tells us that in Matthew chapter 25. And so this is what we're studying. The everlasting covenant is the big one. The everlasting covenant is the precious one. The everlasting covenant is what saves us. And in the process of 6,000 years of earthly history, God reveals more and more of that to us. And so in the very first three chapters of the Bible, we have revealed to us, uh uh-oh, a covenant of condemnation. We are sinners and we have a threefold death on us before we're even conceived. It's enormously weighty in understanding how the world works and the sin and death and decay and sickness and dysfunction all around us, rust and your plants and your animals dying because of sin. And the whole earth is groaning in travail and pain together until now. The whole creation because of that first covenant. And God planned that first covenant before the world began, that that was part of his redemptive plan. I'm going to let men sin. I'm going to create two orders of rational creatures, at least two, angels and men, arrange for them to sin voluntarily and rebelliously against me, and then I'm going to save some of those men. And here we are today, a little group of men, 6,000 years after the creation. How many years? 6,065 after the, did you look at the diagram? 6,065 after the creation of the world. Here we are. And God chose us in eternity past. Then he begins to reveal it to us. And so we get into the first couple chapters of Genesis. Oh, he chose to create. And then he chose to create man and create man a rational creature and give him one commandment to keep. And man did not keep that. And there was a covenant relationship there that Adam stood in for the rest of our race, and we are condemned with three deaths. We don't have to hear about Adam. We don't have to believe there was an Adam. We don't have to sin ourselves to be a sinner already because of him, as Romans 5 explains so well. Then we got Noah. 1,656 years later, along comes the flood, because this earth deserved the flood. And God showed his righteous indignation against sin and against men who are violent and corrupt his way on the earth. And we want to hold to his way on the earth. His way about everything that they're corrupting, let's hold it fast. Let's have the greatest heterosexual relationships in marriage ever. 
to show the world this is the way God wanted it to be from the very beginning. Every relationship, every part, every part of our lives, let's make it conform to God's way on the earth, and He'll bless us and preserve us and put us on, on our own version of the ark to save us with whatever's coming. We don't need to be afraid. There were so many things, but that was last week, and Noah's gone. And we have to move forward now to Abraham. But he's going to reveal a whole lot more through Abraham to us. We get, the, we get a mother load of promises here that we didn't get with Noah. We got some nice things. We got cheap bread on the grocery store shelves. There's things I want more than cheap bread on the grocery store shelves, and I hope you want some things more than that. And we'll see them in Abraham. Abraham's an incredible figure in human history by God's special promises to him. God chose him. God chose him out of Ur of the Chaldeans when he and his family were idolaters. They worshiped other gods. Boom! Jehovah says, pack and move and leave your family. Well, dad tagged along. And so they went north 600 miles, as you've heard recently this past week from a slide presentation or two that you watched. They went up to Haran and then 400 miles to the north, to the southwest, down toward into the land of Canaan and down toward Egypt. Abraham's an incredible figure, and that's how it starts. Look at verse 27 of Acts chapter 11, right after the Tower of Babel. We have a few hundred years between the Tower of Babel and Abraham, between Noah and Abraham, and the Tower of Babel's right in the middle of it. The Tower of Babel happened right between Noah and Abraham, even though there weren't that many years. There were 352 years. And we can, we can stick it right in the middle. Here's how we know it has to be in the middle. Okay, when Noah got off the ark, there were eight people. Abraham went down into Egypt, and there was a nation with a pharaoh. And he left Ur of the Chaldeans, there was a group of people called Chaldeans. I'll bet they spoke Chaldean in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so in 352 years, we went from zero to civilization of different nations speaking different languages. So it was right in the middle in order to get both because there was a crowd at the Tower of Babel. Three sons don't decide, you know what? Let's build a tower that reaches to heaven. That took a group of people. So anyway, it was in the midst. And if you're reading your Bible and you want to know how it makes sense, we read about Peleg in Genesis chapter 10 in the genealogies of the patriarchs. It says in verse 25, And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. Now, this is right in the middle of Shem to Abraham. For in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, that doesn't say very much. But then if you go ahead and read Genesis chapter 11, you read about the Tower of Babel, and the Lord says, I'm going to go down there and confound them and scatter them abroad. I'm going to divide them. They're all stuck together. They think, and they want to build this Tower of Babel to stick together. I'm going to divide them because they're, they're violating what I told them to do. Multiply and replenish the earth. Don't just replenish Mesopotamia, the earth. So... Here, here we're introduced. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. 
Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and not in that order. But Abram is put first because he's a covenant man. And I hope every man in here wants to be a covenant. Was that what you were talking about from Psalm 18? That we would all be covenant men? Was David a covenant man? David was a covenant squared man, as we'll find out as soon as we can get to David. But so was Abraham. Let's be covenant men. Let's have covenant families. Let's have covenant children, covenant great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Gabriel, Gabriel, are you going to be a covenant man? Your dad wants you to be a covenant man. Your mom wants you to be a covenant man. And you're not starting out as an idolater. You're starting out as a worshiper of God. We've heard you in this pulpit before with John chapter 12. A corn of wheat needs to be put in the ground to bring forth much fruit, doesn't it? Every soul in here we care about, want to pray for, encourage, deal with, help to be covenant men. Roger, are you going to be a covenant man? You're going to live the way God tells you to live the entirety of your life? We're only, there's only a few of us, Roger. I hope you'll do it. Abigail, I'm sorry to leave you out. You can be a covenant woman. Grace and Emma, now that you're older, you two better be covenant women. I have more to say to you in just a little while. It's a choice you make every day. I want to be a covenant woman. Abram is not the oldest. This is one of the interesting things in the Bible. All these little details that just are whispering and hinting covenants to us and reminding us that God looks at the whole race and hates the vast majority of them, just like the devil and his angels. Do you think God has a little bit of movement in his heart for the devil and his angels? No, no, you, you, gladly, you gladly will shake your heads. That is not possible that God would have any movement in his heart or any grief for the devil and his angels. Well, don't even think that about reprobates either because they're both in the same category and they're both going, and they're both going to the same place. But he looks upon this earth and he finds his... Co- how does he find his covenant men? Because he chose them before the world began. You say, how can God choose someone and still find delight in them since he chose them? Because each man makes use of God's grace in his life to a different degree than the other men sitting and standing around him. And so does every woman and so does every young person. Sawyer, make use of the grace God's given to you more than others. Outperform Sayer. While I'm at it, Sayer, outperform Sawyer. Show him how to do it. Set the bar so high he can never reach it. Between the two of you, God never puts the bar too high for us not to be able to reach it. When you read the Bible, you'll be remembering God looks on this whole planet and he sends his son and he sends his reign on the evil and the good. But he's only got a soft spot in his heart having loved with an everlasting love those that are his covenant children. And that is real love. John 3.16 love can never measure up to that. John 3.16 love will send you to hell. This love that I'm talking about sends no one to hell. Everyone is in heaven with God, their father. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took them wives The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, 
and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, his grandson, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. That's the 600 miles north up from Ur of the Chaldeans in what we would call Iraq today. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then we get into Abram, and there's 14 chapters. You know, Noah, we had four chapters. But if you go look at the chapters about Noah, most of them were details about the ark and very little about Noah. But these chapters are going to be about Abram and Abraham. He's called Abram by his father because it meant exalted father. Now that's an interesting name to a man who has no children. Exalted father. But that's a prophetic use of God dealing with parents in naming their children, as is often found in the Bible. Then God is going to rename him Abraham for father of many nations. And that becomes very important as it applies to Gentiles, and we'll get to that later in these chapters. God promised he would make Abraham's name great, so we rejoice at finding the name Abraham in the Bible. And so in verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And the, and the promises start. Right off the bat, the promises start at his age of 75, and the Bible wants us to know his age is 75, because we need it for Bible chronology to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told there in verse 4 that he was 75 years old when these promises were made. Because in Galatians chapter 3, these numbers are important if you believe the Bible. If you love the Bible and you want to understand the Bible, the Apostle Paul is going to say that the law of Moses was given 430 years after the promises to Abraham. So you can go right here, calculate what year it was, 2,083 after creation, that Abraham gets these promises. And 430 years later comes the law of Moses. And the Lord expects you to know that. The Lord expects you to appreciate that. That is a doctrinal argument that Jewish legalists, why in the world are you putting your, your confidence in Moses' law when 430 years before Moses' law, God had already promised that Abraham was a blessed man, great man, and was justified and righteous in his sight. So it takes on value. In these chapters we're about to look at, we are going to run into a term of 400 years. We are going to run into this statement, that for 400 years, Abraham's seed is going to be afflicted in the land of Canaan and around the land of Canaan. And then I'll bring them out. But the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So you have 400 and you have 430. And the difference is the 25 years until Isaac was born, who is the seed of Abraham, and the five years until he was weaned, where he's declared and shown publicly at an official event to be the son of Abraham and the true seed that the promises could be with. That's how the Bible chronology works. Just 75 
25 years at 100, he had Isaac. The Bible tells us that. And then we know from the 430 that there's five years we need to account for. And so we understand that he was weaned at the age of five. You say, you trust the Bible numbers that much? Absolutely, without a doubt. Absolutely. God promised he would make Abraham's name great, and so we have found it now in the Bible. We have found it in Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. Three religions. All of our children should know this. What in the world do they go study world history for? What do they study geography for? It's all worthless unless you can apply it to Scripture and truth. Who cares about the continents? Show me who lives on the continents and what happened on the continents that applies to God's Word. Show us something of value. There's three big religions in the world. The three most influential religions in the world all claim Abraham as their father. And it's 53% of the earth's population. What are the three religions? Christianity, Islam, Judaism. The three most influential religions on earth all claim Abraham as their father. Of course, the Jews do. Jonathan, in, in his prayer and reminding us of John chapter 8, told us about the Jews trusting in Abraham their father. But so do the Muslims. 1.8 billion people on earth claim Abraham as their father. Isn't it wonderful to have this book instead of their book? Our book says that the creator of heaven and earth, his name is Jehovah, threw out the bondwoman and her son, but they trace themselves through the bondwoman and her son. Amazing ignorance. And then Christians, they know that Abraham's the father of the faithful. Romans chapter 4 says so. He's the father of all them that believe. We are the real seed of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, and other places. How many of the Middle East are of Ishmael? Think about the Middle East and the people that live there. How many of those people in the Middle East are from Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Keturah's sons? Oh, I guess I just answered how he was a father of many nations. Don't get too hasty. He was a father of many nations that way, but he was a father of many nations in a better way. Because here we are, and we don't relate to any of those, do we, biologically? Many wars have been fought about Abraham and God's promises to him, especially the land that God promised him. Politics of many nations are still impacted by this man, his people, his land, and so forth. His name in two forms, Abram and Abraham, is 236 times in the Old Testament and 70 times in the New Testament and 70 times in the Koran. Ibrahim in the Koran. Is Abraham in the Bible's top seven, five, or three? Praise God for recording so much about him. Do you remember the, how the Noahic covenant chapter ended? Genesis chapter 9. Do you remember that at the end of it, Noah made this prophecy. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Do you remember that at the end of Genesis chapter 9? And so that's how we leave Noah, that there's a prophecy made of Japheth, the father of the Gentiles, 
dwelling in the tents of Shem, the covenant son. And then we have to work through a genealogy in chapter 10 and the Tower of Babel and some more genealogy in chapter 11. And we get to Genesis chapter 12 and it says that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we are going to learn that that means exactly Japheth shall be enlarged and shall dwell in the tents of Shem because that is Gentile conversions. The amount of light that is, sh- that is opened up. You know, we have the woman's seed destroying the devil in Genesis chapter 3, but there's no details about for whom. It's just not there. There'll be a seed, and the devil has a seed, but we're not told very much. Noah gives us another hint, but Abraham's going to tell us a whole lot. And Abraham is our father. You're not impressed yet? If you like heaven, most people want to go to heaven when they die. If you like heaven, then you're going to Abraham's bosom. Then you're going to where Abraham is. You say, prove it. Okay, I won't use where you think I'm going. Matthew chapter 8. Look at Matthew chapter 8. I'm just introducing Abraham to you. Matthew chapter 8. There was a centurion that Jesus met in Capernaum, and he had a servant at home sick, and Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion said, don't waste your time. I'm a man under authority, and I have authority. I'm able to tell soldiers, go here and go there, and they go to where I send them. You just speak the word, and I know it'll happen. And the Lord Jesus was very impressed with that Gentile faith. Do you have faith like that today? We believe it like that. We don't have to sit second fiddle to the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. I believe he can do anything and has done all kinds of things for me in my life. And And for you as well. Matthew 8. Let me get the context, because I I love this story, and so should you. Matthew 8, 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That prophecy right there is fulfilled in the Christian church and it's fulfilled in heaven. Take your pick. It's fulfilled in both places, and I wouldn't make either one of them exclusive to the other because they both go together because we in a church on earth have come unto Mount Zion, which is above, and the heavenly Jerusalem and the spirits of just men made perfect who are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether we're here or there. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the great work of getting us all there. And that's what what the earth is still here for. It's for the last ones to be born that he can save and get there because we're all going to end up together. But what what a statement. They'll come from the east and the west. Well, we're from the west. 
And we're going to sit down with Abraham. We're already sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. And we'll sit down with them again in heaven. A full study of Abraham's character, life, family, and such topics are beyond this study. But the Bible has a great deal to say about the friend of God. My wife likes that, that a man in the Bible, that God could say he's my friend. And that friend can be mentioned in both Testaments. It's not mentioned in Genesis in these 14 chapters. It's mentioned elsewhere. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 20. It's in Isaiah 41, and it's in James chapter 2. There's so much about Abraham. I gave you Romans 4 last night. It's about Abraham. I gave you Galatians 3. It's about Abraham. Who has the most verses in the hall of faith by far? Abraham does in Hebrews chapter 11. There's so much about him. There's a chapter about the man he met after the defeat of the kings. Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapter 7. There's a great deal about him. I sent you recently a timeline of his life for you to be able to appreciate the context and the order of the events in his life. There's a statement made in Hebrews chapter 7. This is how the Lord told us how great Melchizedek is. Melchizedek is great because Abraham paid him tithes. You got to read it. It's Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4. And so that's the measure of Melchizedek that Abraham paid him tithes. Because if Abraham paid tithes to someone and Abraham was already great, then the one that he paid tithes to must really be great. Abraham! Abraham, are you hearing me call your name over and over again? Yes. And there's an Isaac in the back room. And I expect you two to be friends, and you are Isaac's old, little older brother, okay? Do you know Isaac? And we've got a Jacob sitting in the back row, and he's older than both of you. So take care of each other. You have a great name. Was Abraham a giver? He paid tithes of all his military spoil to Melchizedek. Did he know how to deal with his children? He certainly didn't obsess over them. He threw seven of them away. Gave them a present, bye-bye, and gave all to Isaac. Marriage in the Lord? Did he know how to marry in the Lord? Yes, he married a relative to make it sure it was in the Lord. Did he know how to send his servant to help his son Isaac marry in the Lord? Yes, he did. Great examples. Was he worshipful? He built altars here, and he built offers there, and offered sacrifice, and he was willing to burn Isaac up in his worship to God. Did he have courage? He left family and home. He fought four kings with only trained servants. Did he have wisdom? He made covenants with locals and entered into confederations with them. He reasoned with God about being right in the matter of burning up Sodom and Gomorrah. The character of Abraham is great. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Do you think that's a little too bold? That's how Abraham knew he could talk to God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Are you going to burn up the righteous with the wicked? That's bold. Did the Lord like that? Called him his friend. And let him dicker him all the way down to ten souls from fifty. Incredible story. Wisdom. Was he generous? He gave the best land to Lot. Gave a full tithe of spoils to priest Melchizedek. Did he have faith? He believed the impossible. He knew that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he killed Isaac. That is incredible faith. He left all to obey God. 
and he considered not his own body. My favorite words in the Bible. You want a definition of faith? The definition of faith from a man's life is Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Period. He considered not his own body. When God tells you to do something or when God tells you to believe something, the last thing you should do is ask questions about how it's going to happen. That means you don't believe. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God that what he had promised he was able also to perform. He did not think about it. When somebody starts bugging you, well, where was the Bible before the King James Bible? You just walk away from them. You have met someone that is not a believer. We don't need to know where the Bible was in 1610. I couldn't care less where it was in 1610 or in 1016. I don't care. All I know is this Bible has all the marks of God's evidence on it that it's the Word of God. I don't need to find the ark. I don't care about pictures of the ark. And listen, there are so many YouTube clips now about the location of the ark. I don't care about any of them because I have God's Word. God said it, I believe it that it floated from Ur of the Chaldeans or somewhere there in Mesopotamia up to Mount Ararat in Turkey makes perfectly good sense to me and that Noah got off and said, folks, the stars tell me we're a little north of where we used to be. Let's go south. And they went back down to Mesopotamia. I don't need to know anything about how God does it. I don't need to know about how he incarnated the Word of God in the womb of Mary in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said it. That settles it. And that was the way it was with Abraham. Did I get off on character when I said I wasn't going to? The character of Abraham, he considered not. I get so tired of people asking questions. Well, what about this? What about that? You're a detail freak, and you're really a moron because you're dealing with God. If God were to tell you how he did it, you wouldn't be able to understand it. So just believe him when he says it. Our faith is so simple. Build a Build an ark with over a million square feet. And he did. Noah did. Oh, he had faith. For those of you that ever debate the Bible version issue with someone, you have Romans 4, 17 through 21 in the back of your mind because you're going to need it to show them that it's a matter of faith. Faith fruit, facts, and fools. And we start with faith. And if you don't have that, the way the Bible describes it, you cannot learn. You cannot learn. We cannot teach you. I cannot help you. I cannot answer your questions. Your questions are out of order. Oh, is he a great example of faith? He was obedient. No one had ever heard of circumcision. He gets an email from the Lord that tells him to circumcise. And for all those of you that know what that is, and every male in his household, he lined them up and whacked away. He rejected Hagar and Ishmael because God told him to. He offered Isaac as a obedient. He was bold. He left Ur. He left Haran. He entered Egypt. He took on four kings. He reasoned with Jehovah. He was a leader. I know Abraham that he will command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Genesis 18, 19 is one of the best verses in the Bible about male leadership and a father's leadership in a family. I know him. He led an army. Why would servants that were used to hoeing, chopping wood, planting and harvesting, 
Why would they follow him into battle against four kings that had just defeated five kings? Because of his leadership, personal loyalty to him. He had won them just like David won the hearts of 600 scumbags, 400 scumbags of Israel, 600 Gittites of the city of Gath. David won them by personal loyalty to him and by teaching them faith in Jehovah and that they could do great things by trusting God, even if not all of them were even covenant men. And no one knew how to, Abraham knew how to do that. A tremendous example of, full of compassion. Still compassionate for Lot after Lot took the best land for Sodom. Who was the one praying for Lot's salvation and his wife's salvation and his five daughters' salvation and his three sons-in-law? Abraham was, out of compassion for Lot, who, who you should consider an enemy for having taken the prize land and leaving his uncle with the leftovers. He was hospitable. The way he treated the Lord, he sent loads of stuff and gifts to Bethuel, Laban, and Rebekah's family. He knew how to pray. He begged for a son. He begged for Ishmael with the Lord. The Lord would answer him. And he was righteous, and God knew about it and spoke about it of his righteousness, and he was spiritually minded beyond belief of willing to spend his whole life wandering around in tents, knowing that he had a city that had foundations that he was going to. So there's, there's so much about Abraham. He was the 20th from Adam. You know that. You've seen it. He was born 2,008 years after Adam. I've told you why Terah called him exalted father, even though he didn't have any children yet, and that Terah did do that, and then God called him the father of many nations. The Abrahamic covenant was God's promised blessings to Abraham and to his seed. It was made 427 years after the Noahic covenant, 352 years to the birth of Abraham, plus 75, plus 75. Abraham lived to be 175, and we get to watch the details of 100 years of his life. Keep these numbers in mind. The Bible gives them to us. The Bible gives them to us for purpose. And the Bible gives us these genealogies. I hope that you recognize one or two sentences that I wrote you recently that said genealogies had value and worth until Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And as soon as Matthew 1 and Luke 3 were written, a genealogy is worthless. God doesn't care where you come from. All he had to prove is that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of Abraham, was the son of David, and was the son of a woman all the way back to Adam's wife Eve. And he did that in those two genealogies. Other than that, we don't care except for our Lord Jesus Christ. So at 75, he starts the promises. And you have your Bible opened to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so there are a large number of the big promises given to Abraham. These promises will be repeated in the chapters to come. These promises will be confirmed in the chapters to come. These promises will be confirmed to Isaac. These promises will be confirmed to Jacob because they were made to Abraham and his seed. And so immediately, that's here it's Abraham. I want you to notice that. Don't, don't hold God accountable for writing his Bible the way you think that he should. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. I thought that it would be in Abraham's seed that all families of the earth would be blessed. 
Well, how do we get to Abraham's seed without having Abraham? And so it can be said that in Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed because the seed was going to come through Abraham. So here we have it. It's Abraham. In other places in these 14 chapters, it's going to say, through thee and thy seed. Or it's just going to say, in thy seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. The word covenant occurs one time in chapter 15 and 13 times in chapter 17, which is the chapter about circumcision. The first 22 uses of the word covenant in the Bible are Noah and Abraham. What is the Abrahamic covenant? It's God's promises to Abraham and to a future seed. In chapter 12, at the front end of our 14 chapters, it's to Abraham. In chapter 22, at the back end of our chapters about Abraham, it's to him and his seed. In, in chapter 22, that's a big chapter. And you heard about that chapter this week. Genesis chapter 22 is when Abraham was willing to offer Isaac on an altar on Mount Moriah. And God said, now I know that you believe me. Now I know that you fear me. And so he confirmed the promises. He's making them here at 75. I want you to know these things and never forget them. And for those of you that are young that may sometime in your life want to discuss salvation with someone from the world's most unusual university that is compromising so fast in this city that's unbelievable by those people that went to it over the last hundred years. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. If you ever get into discussion about salvation, why not use the number one salvation example in the Bible, and that's Abraham, and show them how you're to understand Abraham believing in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. So that was one of the lessons given to you this past week. Don't forget, he's 75 right here. This is chapter 12. Do you know that chapter 12 is not 15? Do you know that chapter 12 comes before 15? Do you know that quite a few events happened in 13 and 14 before we get to 15? 15. Do you know why 15's in the Bible, the verses 5 and 6? For Paul. For Paul to use. It's got no other significance. And Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Very insignificant event. I just wish you could see that. Abraham packing up and leaving everything that he knew to go to a place that he didn't know is what is identified in Hebrews chapter 11 as great faith. In Romans chapter 4, the great faith is, I have made thee a father of many nations. That's Genesis 17. Genesis 15, 5 and 6 is a very insignificant event. I am not saying the Lord didn't put it there for incredibly valuable reasons. I'm saying I hope that you can think about why he put it there. He put it there for Paul to use against Jewish legalists. So it would be short, sweet, and show them that they were wrong about thinking circumcision or the law of Moses was the means of justification. You say, well, it proved Abraham's faith. No, it didn't. James said it didn't. It didn't prove Abraham's faith. Abraham had already shown far greater faith than he showed in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, he went out and he said, okay. How about moving out of Ur of the Chaldeans? And I'm not, I'm not making fun of Genesis 15. I want you to put it in its proper place because it will save you. When you get into Romans chapter 4 and you think that you believe the doctrine of salvation like we do, and there Paul is talking about belief, 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 faith, 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 over and over, and you wonder, he, he sounds like an Arminian. We've been through this, brother. I've been through with many people in my lifetime. He sounds like an Arminian in Romans 4. 
That's because he's dealing with Jewish legalism and he pulls up that one event because the Lord put it there for him and it's perfect. That's why he used it about four or five times in Romans 4 only and he used it in Galatians chapter 3 and then James used it in James chapter 2 for it to all fit together for us to see from that simple example. Abraham had faith long before Genesis 15, 5 and 6. He had faith greater than going outside and saying, I can't count them. Okay. They're wonderful. It's a wonderful way that Paul used it. And thank you, Lord, for putting it there. And thank you for giving us an understanding of it. And thank you for showing us in 14 chapters the whole life of Abraham, that he was a man of faith when he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans because you had saved him from idolatry, and he obeyed you. Some aspects of the covenant, these covenant promises that we're going to read, and there's 10. I've tried to summarize them to 10. Some aspects of the covenant promises to Abraham are earthly and natural to his biological descendants. Some aspects of the covenant promises to Abraham are conditional on the obedience of those descendants. Some aspects of the covenant promises are heavenly and spiritual to his spiritual descendants. Some aspects of the covenant promises are unconditional by the work of the main seed, Jesus Christ. And you need to have those four options twirling around in your mind because we're just going to run into them over and over. And when we look at the ten promises, I'm going to show you how they apply those four ways. Because there'll be a land promise. Was that land promise fulfilled naturally and earthly in an earthly way? Of course it was. From the Euphrates to the Nile. That's about as earthly as you can get. There's no Nile or Euphrates in heaven. It's earthly. Was it conditional? Yes, it was. If you don't obey, I'll pluck you off, off that land and scatter you in the nations. But is there another way to understand that land? The way Abraham understood it? Yes. It's a spiritual fulfillment in heaven, and it was unconditional for his spiritual descendants. Do you see how the word land fulfills all four of those? And so the Word of God teaches us the covenant promises made to Abraham. These options have to be kept open for each of the ten promises or so that God made to him. Look at the progression in Abraham's life. He, we have a hundred years of his life. At the beginning here, in, at age 75, the promises are given initially, originally given right here. They are ratified by a sacrifice in Genesis 15, when God himself has the sacrifice. He's then given the sign and seal of this covenant with circumcision in chapter 17, and it's confirmed by God's oath in chapter 22. And so we have this progression originally given, a sacrifice to ratify it, a seal and a sign, a token of it in circumcision, and then God swore with an oath to give even greater assurance to us that he's going to keep these promises. This is just a short introduction to Abraham and his covenant promises. Please stand with me.